Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Come into God's presence with singing. Let us worship the Lord our God. Are my hope. My I trust the Lord from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Holy God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we know that we are restless until we find our rest in thee. In this hour, Open our hearts to praise you and thank you for your generous mercies to us. Gracious source of our being, we praise you and thank you for even the breath of life given to us. Fill our hearts with your presence that our mouths may proclaim your praise. may be seated. Grace to you and peace from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those hearty souls gathered here in the sanctuary and everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful indeed to gather in the name of the Lord for worship, whether we are in our homes or whether we are in this space. 
We greet one another in Christ's name, and so that means that our greeting is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached, because all are welcome in Christ's house, all are welcome here. We would, I would normally at this point invite you to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall, but for just a little while longer, we hope, we will be holding off on that until the Omicron numbers get just a little bit better. And until then, we ask you go ahead to make your exit from the building as efficiently as possible and taking care to avoid large groups uh, so that we might protect one another from the pandemic. I'd like to highlight a few things for your particular attention this morning. The first is to call to your attention an ongoing series, or a series beginning on Wednesday that will be ongoing throughout the month of February, on interfaith contemplative practices led by the Reverend Margaret Somerville. That will be on Wednesday nights. The first one is this Wednesday, and you may sign up for that using the church office or our church website to receive that Zoom link so that you may participate in this series of classes in the month of February. I'd like to highlight as well that the session has called a congregational meeting for February the 13th at 10 o'clock. That's between our two services so that the majority of our members can participate. We are endeavoring to make this a hybrid meeting so those who worship at home will still be able to participate. But that will take place here in the sanctuary at 10 a.m. on February the 13th. And as called congregational meetings can only be for the purpose for which they are called, you will see a description of that meeting in your bulletin. With these things noted, let us continue to worship God with our confession of sin. The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigned in power for us. Christ even prays for us. With such assurance, we need not fear confession, but simply draw to our maker in candor, first together and then in silence. God of love, you created us to live lives marked by the love with which you made us, but our sin has prevented us from being what you created us to be. We have failed to live as messengers of a love so great that you became incarnate that we might know who, of our imaginations, we have not loved you as you have So forgive us, we pray. Forgive us and recreate us with your image fresh upon us. Use us to make your love known where you would lead us to be. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners. Brothers and sisters, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first reading today comes from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Our second reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 21 to 30. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many, many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Our epistle lesson today is a familiar one from the 13th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It is so familiar, in fact, that I wonder sometimes if we begin to get into a rhythm as we listen to it and don't hear all of the words as they are addressed to us. So I invite you this week to revisit this text. I would encourage you to take a Bible, one if you have one at home. You can take one from the rack in the, on the pew in front of you if you need one, and revisit this text. Read it, I would say, each night and see what fresh insights might come to you from revisiting the text, from slowing down over its words. I'll be curious to hear what you come to. Listen for the word of God as it comes to us from the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all of my possessions, if and, I, if and, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. 
for we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A seminary professor was known for preaching so eloquently on the topic of Love that he was invited to preach in multiple congregations around the same area. One couple was so touched by his sermons that they approached him after the service was over one day and asked if he might be willing to speak with their 19-year-old daughter, whom they described as, quote, an alcoholic and out of control, unquote. The professor agreed to meet with her and was able to make an assessment on their first visit. He recounted, When I saw her, I thought, Young lady, if you're feeling all right, please tell your face. She was totally unhappy and with a very negative attitude. The story goes on that they met several more times, and each time the professor became more convinced that the young woman's problem was that she was completely self-absorbed. Indeed, he described her at one point as the most self-centered person he had ever met. Finally, one day, he confronted her with her self-absorption. He said, you know what you need? You need a Copernican revolution. You need to know that the world doesn't revolve around you. You live in a world whose population is one. The girl stomped out of his office and never came back. About a month later, the professor met with a psychiatrist who had come to a, for a lecture at the seminary, and he quizzed the psychiatrist, how do you get someone to love, to not be self-centered? The psychiatrist asked him why he asked such a question, and the professor told the story of the young woman. The psychiatrist replied to him, I don't think you can get people to love. It's a decision of the will and a commitment. People must decide to love and commit, to, commit themselves to it, or they'll never do it. But if you really wanted to help that young lady to love, 
If you wanted to help her do all that, you went about it the wrong way. The psychiatrist went on, asking the professor, Have you ever had a toothache? Yes, the professor replied. And what did you think about? The psychiatrist asked. Well, I thought about me. And what else? I thought about finding a dentist. That's right, the psychiatrist responded. When you are in pain, you cannot think about other people. You think about your pain and how to find someone to help. And the girl came to you thinking, maybe this person can help me. And so she came out from behind the mask and revealed herself to you. And she is selfish because she is hurting so much. Someone has given her such a bad image of herself that she reflects that image, and it comes out as selfish, uncaring, and worthless. But she's just playing the role they gave her. And she doesn't come to church, not because she doesn't want to, but because she thinks that if she does that, God might say to her, what are you doing here? And you said you didn't like her either. I never said that, replied the professor. Oh, you didn't? When you said you need a Copernican revelation, your world has a population of one, you didn't have to say, I don't like you. Have you ever been tempted to say something like that? I confess I have, and I was worse than tempted. Once I wrote one of those seemingly soul-satisfying screeds that we all want to write from time to time, and then I hit send. It felt exhilarating for about ten seconds until I realized what I had done. Have you ever done that? I immediately followed up with another note, apologizing to my colleagues and asking them to forgive me for my rather uncharitable characterization of someone who had completely gotten under my skin. It is the sort of situation that Paul encountered in the Corinthian church that led him to write that extraordinary hymn to love that we encounter here in the 13th chapter. Now, aren't those words just lovely? I mean, who wouldn't want to love like that and to be loved like that? I read this passage a lot at weddings, and I think it's because it is so deeply aspirational that couples respond to it. Because we all want to know, particularly at the cusp of a marriage, that, that this kind of love is possible, even if it is fleeting and rare, but too often we get Copernican revelations and unfortunate emails. It is hard work to commit to love. It is hard work to commit to love when we, what we encounter seems closer to self-absorption and unkindness than it does to the divine love of Christ. This is so often true that Frederick Buechner echoes the sentiment that love is a choice. He writes, in the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion, but an act of the will. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, he's not telling us to love them in the sense of responding to them with a cozy emotional feeling. You can as easily produce a cozy emotional feeling on demand as you can yawn or sneeze. On the contrary, he is telling us to love our neighbors in the sense of being willing to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that end. Even if it means just leaving them alone. 
Thus, in Jesus' terms, we can love our neighbors without necessarily liking them. In fact, liking them may stand in the way of loving them by making us overprotective sentimentalists instead of reasonably honest friends. Which is to say that whatever love is, love is primarily a choice. What is particularly interesting to me is that in that great hymn to love, Paul takes a moment to identify what love is not. He writes, as you heard, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Now, please note, Paul is not saying that we are not frequently all of these things. We may indeed be envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. We may from time to time insist on our own ways and even be irritable and resentful. Occasionally, we may be happy that we got away with wrongdoing. Paul does not claim that these things do not happen. Indeed, he does not claim that Christians do not do these things from time to time. He just says that they aren't love. For Paul to have claimed that these Christians did not do these things from time to time would have been laughable to the Corinthian Christians. They knew perfectly well that their neighbors could be petty, rude, mean, self-absorbed, and all of that despite being Christians. No, Paul is very realistic in his assessment of the Corinthian church. And he knew that whatever it was, it was not love that motivated these actions. And so it is that as, as I speak to you today about true love, I want to be very clear in not confusing what love is. Love is none of the things that Paul says it is not. Now, before we go any further, I want to disclaimer something. The church rightly teaches that marriage is important, that relationships are important, that we are not to enter them lightly or exit them lightly. And because the church speaks with clarity on this matter, that clarity can, from time to time, run the risk of misinterpretation. So let me be very plain. If you are in a relationship that is characterized by abusive behavior, God wants you to have help. Sometimes a change of behavior will help. Sometimes it requires a change of relationship. But make no mistake about it. God's call to commitment never means that God delights in seeing God's creation stay in a situation that leaves them beaten down. I say these things because love is an act of the will, and loving oneself is an act of the will, and you deserve to be loved. And when we love and are loved, God is served in the world. I have been honing a marriage homily for some 20 years now. Some of you have heard it, and actually I have preached it at some of your weddings. And if you haven't heard it, it goes something like this. Love gives us the opportunity to show the world what God is like. And marriage is a vocation because God is glorified when people see what God looks like through the expression of love. And like I said, I've been honing this marriage homily for 20 plus years now because I think that it reflects a tiny, minuscule, 
incomplete and inadequate reflection of who God is and what God is really like. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that God is love. God is love. You know, God didn't have to make creation. God is complete in God's own self. God's creation of humankind and of all of the universe didn't come about due to some inadequacy in God's being. Rather, theologians say that God made creation out of the overflowing of God's love. It is out of the overflowing of love that creation comes into being, and it is the overflowing of God's love that will address the pain of the world. Just as the psychiatrist earlier diagnosed the pain of the individual as the root cause of self-centeredness, so as well the brokenness of sin is the root cause of the violation of shalom that exhibits itself in so much hurt in the world. It is only the overflowing of love that can heal the world. Indeed, it is only the overflowing of love that will heal the world. And as I said, God created creation out of the overflowing of God's love. And God goes right on creating creation every day out of the overflowing of God's love. God's love, that overflowing, is always ongoing. It's always ongoing, but it's never complete. And as I have said, God calls us to be co-creators alongside God. And that means participating in the overflowing of divine love. There is a weathered bronze plaque on the wall of the Mackay Center at Princeton Seminary where the community gathers for its meals. The plaque was placed by the class of 1953 in memory of their friend James Joseph Reeb, who was killed in the marches on Selma, Alabama. He responded to a call from Dr. King to come and to march, and on the night of March the 9th, he fell to the sidewalk after a crushing blow to his skull. His classmates placed the marker in memorial to him, and years later the seminary invited a member of the class of 1953 to preach in chapel to commemorate the Selma March. Reeb's classmate wanted to appeal to those gathered to work for the healing of the world. And so he began listing all of the ways he might appeal to those who were listening. He might appeal on the basis of their long friendship, or he might appeal to them out of great social concern. He might appeal to them, he said, on the basis of Princeton's tradition of leadership. But then, he said, none of these are adequate. I can appeal to you on only one basis, that we join together in coming to grips with this question. What am I, as a Christian, to do? Not what am I as an individual, or what am I as a citizen, or even what am I as a member of this seminary community to do, but what am I, as a Christian, to do? That is the heart of Paul's hymn to love in 1 Corinthians. Love is an act of the will, and to love is to be joined to God's ongoing work of reconciling the whole of creation. It is to be called to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. As I have said, love is a vocation. It is a holy calling. When love is lived out in marriage, when love is lived out in friendship, it bears witness 
for the living God, sometimes even at the same time. When love has lived in the church and in the home, it bears witness to the living God. And if there's any hope for redemption of the world, it is in that God first loved us. Indeed, that the redemption epic of Christian faith is God's great love letter to the world. There is a story told of a young boy whose sister was suffering from a rare blood disorder. It was determined that she needed a transfusion and that the best hope for success would come from someone closest to her, so it was determined that her brother would be the best source for the transfusion. He was asked by a nurse if he would be very brave and give her his blood. And the boy bit his lip and said no. They pleaded with him and finally he relented. They placed the needle, and it was only after his blood began to flow into the pint bag that he began to cry. Worried that he was in pain, they rushed over to him. Does it hurt? They asked. No, he managed to get out through his sobs. Well, what is it? They asked him. Finally, he managed to ask the question that troubled him. How long will it take for me to die? He had not grasped that they only needed a pint of his blood. And dear friends, that is the love of God. Love that sees the self-centeredness of the world and knows it is but a symptom of a deep hurt. That is the love of God that gives itself to the point of depletion, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Love is not a cozy feeling. It is an act of the will. And so the question remains for you and for me. What am I, as a Christian, to do? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us affirm our faith together. 
with the ancient baptismal creed of the Church. What do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Remembering that all that we have and all that we are is a gift from God, let us return to God the gifts of what we have taken from God's abundance and the prayers of our hearts with our morning offering. Remembering whether we make our gifts online or following the service, God loves a cheerful giver.
Let us unite our hearts and our minds in prayer. Let us pray. Holy God, for your generosity to us at every turn, we are grateful. Receive our offerings of our hearts, our prayers, and our treasure. Bless them and use them that they might be a blessing to those we encounter. And to that end, turn our hearts once more to you. Enable us to see what you would have us do and be, and seeing, enable us to act. Help us to realize that when we love and when we fail to love, our actions matter. Help us to realize our actions matter when we pray or when we fail to pray for a world standing in need of prayer. Keep us mindful of that which we may do and help us to do it. And so we come to pray, knowing that you will hear us, knowing that you want to hear us, and that you will act on our prayers, even using our own hands to fulfill them. We pray for the world that you have made and love. Help us to know our place in it, to occupy no more space and take no more resource than as our share. Guide our leaders be wise stewards so that others may have what is theirs. Help us all to live with our abundance in such a way that everyone may have enough. We pray for this community where we live. Just as you called your people in ancient times to be a light to the nations, you call us still to witness of your goodness, your mercy, and your love to all people, and to do it where we live and work and make our homes. That is what it is to be a light to the community. So we pray that you would make us a grace-giving people. We pray specifically for those who are shut out and forced to the margins of society, for the sick and the aged, for those mentally troubled, for those experiencing homelessness, for all who are depressed and facing the demon of addiction, for those who need a measure of your care and your comfort for victims of violence, and gun violence in particular. Holy God, open our eyes to the hurt of the world that we may seek to overwhelm it with the overflowing of love. And so we pray as well for and with those who don't look like us and who perhaps don't act like us and perhaps even those who make us uncomfortable. Help us to pray together and to be transformed by the overflowing of love that you call us to live. Because we pray this in the name of the one who lived holy for you and holy for humanity, love incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
as I was reflecting this last week on the notion that love is not primarily a cozy emotional feeling, but rather an act of the will, I kept coming back, in, back again to a quote from an old friend of mine, Dr. Peter Hobby, who once said that most people will value the friendship more than they value the friend. The kind of love that Christ calls us to is the kind that values the friend above all else. So let us live with that love. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.